Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast and coming to you as always from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And well, the not famous part is ironic because they're all well known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. So I say they really are brilliant and committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things come from sharing their stories with all of you and to the universe. So today, I'm super excited to have on the show uh, Dr. Leah Backus. Uh, she trained in general surgery at the University of Southern California and cardiothoracic surgery at the University of California, Los Angeles. She practices at Stanford Hospital and is chief of thoracic surgery at the VA Palo Alto. Her surgical practice consists of general thoracic surgery with special emphasis on thoracic oncology and minimally invasive surgical techniques, which I love. Uh, she's also co-director of the Thoracic Surgery Clinical Research Program and has grant funding through the Veteran, uh, Veterans Affairs Administration and the NIH. Her current research interests are in imaging surveillance following treatment for lung cancer and cancer survivorship. So Leah, thank you for coming and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, I'd like to start by having you tell us about yourself um, and maybe a little bit about the young Leah Bacchus. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think your bio kind of sums things up um, relatively succinctly professionally. Um, I'm a West Coast person, uh, kind of been all up and down the West Coast, so hailing from Southern California. Uh, hence uh, where my training had been. I actually went to Stanford for undergrad, so it, it's kind of ironic that it uh, took me about 20 years to, to make my way back to the farm uh, now as a faculty member. But um, I uh, grew up in a, a single-parent household, uh, very modest means, very humble beginnings, but had a lot of uh, support around me, which I think uh, every kid needs to kind of help them flourish and not keep them confined so that they can go off and do really amazing things. So hopefully I'm living up to some of that. <laughs> well, I'm sure you are. Did you, did you always um, like science when you were, when you were a kid and did you, did you always think about being a doctor? I did. I, um, it's kind of weird, uh, but I, I think it was sixth grade that I decided that I wanted to be a doctor and actually I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Um, which I cringe to say, but is the truth. But honestly, I had zero um, rationale behind that choice. I just, um, I basically kind of queried the people around me, like, what's the hardest part of, of, of medicine? What's the thing that we know the least about? And somewhere along the line, people said, it's the brain. And I said, oh, okay, great. Well, then that's what I want to do. I want to like, kind of like be an explorer and operate on the brain. Um and uh, it took many years to disavow me of that uh, ambition, not all the way until second year of medical school, actually. Um, but uh, I think I did. I, I stayed pretty close to those. those uh, Get close. Aspects. I mean, you're still a surgeon, <laughs> but 
But that's, it's amazing that you held that for so long, all the way through your second year of medical school, that, uh, you know, that was, it sounds like you were, you were ready to change the world or tackle the hardest, hardest problems in medicine, right? I certainly like the challenge, but I, I think I was also just one of those kids that really enjoyed uh, getting the affirmations of the adults around me too, you know? And so if you say that you want to be a brain surgeon, everyone's really, really, uh, wowed by that you know so um that's what i mean by that that support which i think was really really critical but like i said i had like no exposure no background no real rationale for this thought i had but it was uh, bolstered and and supported so there you go that's awesome uh, but no other doctors or nurses or any other of uh, health professionals in your My family. grandmother actually was a was nurse. Um, she, uh, she's a pretty remarkable woman. Um, she, and I think probably my very large family, because she had 13 children, um, that she's probably the person I, I um, most closely resemble in terms of uh, personality and whatnot. She's since passed away a few years ago, but she was, she went to Howard University and she was a nurse um her fa- her father got ill and you know that was sort of the main impetus for her going to nursing school she was at um Bellevue in New York and um yeah she said she wanted to be a doctor now that's not to say that you know most nurses want to be doctors by any stretch of the imagination but you know at the time and uh, I guess it would have been the 30s and um, 40s that that was not really um a very uh, you know a career very becoming for a woman. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great story, and I I can totally appreciate that relationship that you probably had, or the way that you look up to her. My 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 wife is a nurse, and her father was a pharmacist, and so she was she didn't know that she wanted to be a nurse, but she knew she wanted to do something in healthcare. Uh-huh. And then, of course, my son is a nurse practitioner. So there we go. Know, he's he's <laughs> yeah. So so it kind of everyone you know looks up to the or I guess you stand on the shoulders of the person that came before you. Uh, but I'm, of course, I'm super proud of, of of both of them, and I'm sure that your family is really proud of you too. And I wanted to switch because I we kind of I think we joked about this when we first met. But so you have degrees from USC, you have a degree from UCLA, uh, you're you're working at Stanford, and you also have a relationship with the University of Washington. So first, let's start with the with the LA thing. Like when you go, if you go to UCLA, USC and you go to UCLA, is that like a conflict of interest or is that a problem with some people or is that okay? It is a little bit. It definitely is. I have to say, since this is, you know, the after Super Bowl, go Rams. Um, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, and I, you know, not only did I go to USC for med school, but, you know, stayed through residency as well. So that was 11 years worth of Trojan, um, uh, indoctrination, which is good. And, uh, it was actually, it compared only two years spent at UCLA. So from a, from a time footprint and definitely USC wins. And, and actually that's where I met my husband was, uh, he was also in grad school at USC. So we're a big time Trojan family. And it also puts me at odds with Stanford too. Uh, was- you know, any kind of, uh, conflicts in, uh, within the PAC 12, there, there is an issue. <laughs> Well, I was just that was that was my next point I was going to make. It's like, and of course, I'm just kidding you about this, but but you know, you went to school at Stanford. Now you're working at Stanford, but you have relationships with USC, which is special. You met your husband there. Uh, you did some great work at UCLA. So, like, who are you rooting for? 
I know it depends on the game. It depends <laughs> on the game and the circumstances, the stakes, et cetera. I mean, for the most part, you know, Stanford kind of trumps them because that was my first, you know, post high school school. So um, it's not because I work here. It's because that was my undergrad. And that's where you kind of have those formative years. Right. So Stanford kind of trumps most of them. Uh, and then SCU's a very, very close second. It's more <laughs> like a 1.5. <laughs> that's okay. I won't hold you to it. Anybody who hears this, they're going to understand because I'm sure we all, we all have relationships with, with Tricky. places, Tricky. right? So, you know, I went to Penn and, um, but I've got friends who went to Penn and then went to like, you know, Harvard Medical School or Harvard Law School or whatever. So it's sort of the same thing. It's like, okay, yeah. the, the heart's got to be with Penn, right? We got to, you know, so. Right, you got to decide. <laughs> so, so you mentioned earlier about, you know, until your second year of medical school, wanting to possibly be a neurosurgeon, but can you tell us how you chose uh, thoracic oncology? And I knew you wanted to be a surgeon, but how did you end up um, in, in the thoracic world? Well, I mean, it's really all about exposure, honestly. Um, I, you know, I landed in a, a very high volume uh, general surgery training program at USC, which was fantastic. And it has this storied history of um, thoracic and foregut surgery, actually. And, you know, based on the chairman and sort of all the research that had been done there. So for that reason, we as general surgery residents got a ton of exposure to both thoracic and to cardiac surgery, which is really unparalleled at this point because um, general surgery and the training of general surgeons is trained considerably such that um, the experience in some of the other surgical specialties, which heretofore had been kind of a cornerstone of it, has really been truncated um, you know, for, for good reason. Uh, it's not just you know, willy-nilly, but it's just because of obviously the breadth of things that one needs to cover uh, in a general surgery training program is just keeps expanding exponentially. So nowadays, residents get comparatively little exposure in cardiothoracic surgery, at least. But at the time for my training, we got a lot, like basically every year, at least once a year, we were rotating on cardiac or thoracic or both. So the exposure was amazing. Um, and I, I'd say I, um, I thought to myself, you know, these guys, because they were all guys, <laughs> the faculty are doing amazing surgeries, but yet, and, and, and you know, people are incredibly sick, so there's high acuity, um, but yet and still they're very calm for the most part, like they weren't frazzled, they were just sort of rolling with the pin punches and you know, I enjoyed my time which, when you're a junior resident, you're mostly parked in the ICU, just sort of watching and trying to put out fires and whatnot. And so I really enjoyed my time in the in the unit, taking care of these complicated patients um, and the faculty and the encouragement that I got from those faculty, like, hey, you know, you probably could do CT surgery. I'm like, really? Like, you've selected me kind of thing. Um, so... But also to just the anatomy of the chest, it's really interesting. I mean, it's um, it's a clean surgical field. Uh, you don't really have to deal with bowel for the most part. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a treasure trove, honestly. It's pretty interesting. And then, of course, as you mentioned, thoracic oncology, but you can't go into thoracic surgery and not like oncology, right? I mean, because that is by and large, what we do is oncology. My own practice tends to have a, a good amount of non-oncology, but you know, that that's the that's the main draw for most people. 
and the fact that you're trying to avert disaster, uh, which would be an untreated malignancy, is really, uh, it's a privilege to enter into somebody's life during that that um, trying time and and sign up together as a team to try to you know avoid that outcome is 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 a privilege yeah well there's two things that that struck me from what you just said and first it's great to see so many more women be becoming thoracic surgeons i think it's great um because you know i know many of the guys uh that that are friends of yours (laughs) um uh but um I also wanted to, um, uh, you know, being, I just lost my train of thought, but um, did you have um, mentors along the way that really uh, impacted you? I did uh, and still do. Um, I think all of us can benefit from really good mentorship and your, your, I call it actually more like my brain trust because it's it's really a, a a collaboration, if you will, of mentors or conglomerate of mentors because you are a very varied individual. There are different facets of your um, your life, personally and professionally, that need to be cultivated. And so you have peer to peer mentors. You have um, mentors who are uh, way ahead of you. Mentors who are slightly ahead of you. Um, And then, of course, like I said, you have your peers um, and you have mentors who are within academia, some who are not within academia, some who are more technical mentors, like, hey, I've got this really challenging case coming up. I wanted to go over my surgical plan with you. Let me know. What do you think? Um, And then you've got kind of more big picture, like, hey, I'm being recruited over to this new institution. Uh, What do you think about this opportunity kind of thing? So, You've got to, I think, constantly cultivate that conglomerate or that brain trust of people that you're able to to lean on um, and that, you know, things happen in a relatively fast pace, you know, so you don't have time to go and find mentors. Uh, you got to kind of collect them all along the way. So, Well, I love the I, I love you thinking of it as t- in terms of a brain trust, because I know when my mom was sick, she was at the Mayo Clinic and she had a. Um, a Whipple surgery and had very, some complications from that. And I was like, oh, my, my primary care doctor, you know, is a gastroenterologist. And, and my parents were like, look at me, I had three heads, but I was like, it, it, this idea of having people, you have a complicated case and why wouldn't you want to, to get the brain trust involved to bring the best patient uh, care to the patient. Right. So I, not only does it inspire you as a professional, you know, having mentors and then, and then yourself and probably being a mentor to, the next generation coming up, uh, just that idea of like not trying to solve everything by yourself, but uh, but actually you know rely on your on your colleagues and your brain trust. So I, I love the way you framed that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it's already potentially daunting the challenge that it is that you're facing, but you don't need to layer on top of that isolation for no reason, right? Exactly. Like. Um, chances are there are several people within relatively close proximity, just a couple degrees of separation, who you'd be able to tap into that could be a benefit for you. So not only do you have that brain trust, but then you have like ad hoc mentors, you yeah. know, that you can pull in uh, as necessary. So I'm a huge fan for about uh, asking for help and asking for advice. It doesn't mean that you're going to use every bit of advice per se, but just that process itself 
is a rewarding experience of getting out and talking to people and not doing things in isolation because you're always more creative, more powerful, more uh, impactful when you are open to new ideas and suggestions. I totally agree. Thank you for sharing that because I love this. I just love the way you framed it. And I'm going to remember that not talking about a brain trust, but I now remember what I wanted to ask you earlier um, because I know you're really um, putting an emphasis on minimally invasive surgical techniques. And um, as I think I mentioned, Doug, Doug, uh, Matisson was my surgeon at, at uh, Mass General uh-huh. Hospital, and I had a very invasive lobectomy, but this was 20 years ago. So can you tell us like, what's, how, how things have changed? And would I, if I had the same thing today, would I have, would I have, would it be different for me? Well, Dr. Matisson is, is, is an iconic figure. Uh, so um, good on you for getting a great surgeon to, to, to help you at that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, minimally invasive surgery is, 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 um, it's not that new, obviously, at, at this point, you know, um, and it encompasses not only um, video assisted thoracic surgery or VATS, but it also includes robotic surgery. Uh, it includes like smaller techniques like uniportal surgery, which is sort of like kind of a hybrid sort of pseudo in between. Um, but I mean, the intent always is to lessen the discomfort um, that the patient has to endure and thereby um, facilitate faster recovery uh, and, and make the impact of surgery, shrink the impact of surgery to the extent that we can so that it becomes more akin to just, you know, a, a brief intervention that patients are able to get over and get back to their lives from. And so minimally invasive surgery does absolutely help in that regard. I always tell patients it's the same operation on the inside though, you know, so yes, from a overall physiologic standpoint and from incisional pain and that sort of thing, there are big differences in terms of the speed of recovery, uh, but it also depends on the patient um, and it depends on what it is that you're doing, right? So if I have to take out a whole lobe, I still have to take out a whole load when you're still going to be missing that proportion of your respiratory capacity, right? So um, it's important, I think, to emphasize the fact that the things happening on the inside are the same, regardless of the approach. And if you're unable to do the same thing, then you probably shouldn't be doing that minimally invasively, right? So like you asked, would I still have the same surgery today? It depends uh, because it depends on, you know, where your tumor was, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, not all surgeons are minimally invasive surgeons and that's okay. So it's not like an indictment of someone who um, practices all traditional thoracic surgery techniques because they are actually tried and true and they are still the bedrock of what we do. But the more important thing is what is that surgeon's comfort level with doing what needs to be done for you? And so it's nice to be able to go to see someone who has a full repertoire of surgical techniques that they can offer you so that they're going to be able to right size the surgery for you. Yeah. No, I know that was a tough question. It wasn't a fair question. To ask, but, <laughs> and like, as I mentioned, Doug, Dr. Matisse was, he was just brilliant and he was a nice man and he I had a positive outcome. And so I have nothing but positive experience, although, although it's, it, it was a challenge, you know, it's a painful experience. So it took yeah several months afterwards, you know, of, of nerve pain to really to yeah. get through it entirely. But they, but they also told me at the time that it's sometimes it's harder for a young person because I was only 34 years old at the time because you tend to be want to be more active. And so um, so anyway, the recovery was challenged. But again, it was it was a really great experience. Um, so you also 
you also do research and I'd love for you to share with us um, anything that you're most excited about right now that you're working on. You know, my main uh, research focus is in the area of um, surveillance after lung cancer treatment. And I kind of felt like as a very young surgeon coming out of training that here we are, I'm a, you know, newly minted board certified surgeon sitting in my office, seeing a patient and I, I diagnose their cancer, I get to treat them and operate on them, et cetera. And, and here we are at the tail end of it, we're going over their pathology. And I felt like the patient and myself were kind of looking at each other like, okay, now what, you know? Um, and I actually think it's a little bit frightening. Um, perhaps you'd have more insight here, of course, though, from a patient perspective of, what do you mean? That's it? Like, we're not doing anything else? Like, shouldn't we do some chemo? Or should we get another PET scan? Or should, like, what else are we doing? You know, and for the most part, all the guidelines, which we have to refer, refer to, are like, no, you really don't have to do anything, you know, for a stage 1A cancer, you just uh, watch them, you know, like I said, which can be pretty uncomfortable. And then the question is, how do you watch? How frequently do you watch? What kind of imaging do I get? And you know, what do you do if you're over imaging someone such that you're seeing lots of little random kind of blips on the radar, I call them, that are inconsequential in the in the grand scheme of things. But for a patient, every scan, if you're going to scan every three, four months, that's kind of excessive. And uh, that means that they're going to be put through a whole bunch of anxiety, at least potentially so, uh, every few months as you try to decide to interpret how to interpret each one of those scans and what you're going to do because of that. Um, so that was sort of the genesis of my, of my main question was what's the, what's the data upon which we make this relatively loose recommendation, which is just for a CT scan to be done every six to 12 months. That was at the time, um, like 12 years ago, it's changed somewhat now, but only very recently. Um, but it was this kind of one size fits all approach. It really didn't take into account any of the tumor biology, any of the patient characteristics, any of the treatment that the patient had otherwise undergone, et cetera. It was just sort of like, this is the stage and this is what you do. Um, or actually didn't even take into consideration stage. It was just, this is what you do. So um, at the VA, uh, there's a really unique opportunity because the VA is a little bit of a double-edged sword. It's fantastic working there. And that's, you know, I love taking care of our veteran population. Um, the burden of lung cancer is exceedingly high within the VA. So it has a very hefty um, clinical footprint. Um, but the VA also represents a treasure trove of data. And um, you just have to figure out how to crack the nut. They don't make it easy, you know. But if you're an insider, you're already working within the VA. There are mechanisms, of course, to do that type of research. And so that's what I'm doing. And I have a team that is looking at um, harnessing the potential of this huge chunk of data that sit there, which are basically the imaging test results for um, you know, hundreds of thousands of patients with lung cancer. Um, and figuring out the best way to look at that and interpret things and predict and see if we can model what's the most appropriate way that we should be doing surveillance that's going to be the most beneficial for the, for the biggest number of patients. And also kind of leveraging that against what the costs and burden are to the healthcare system, knowing, for instance, within the VA system, it's a closed system. 
we have a finite amount of resources, you know, because you want one approach would be to just, well, let's just scan everybody all the time. <laughs> then you don't miss anything, you know, but that's a very, um, what's the word? irresponsible uh, approach to take for multiple reasons. Yeah. But you've touched on something really important that it's also about the relationships you have with your patient too, because, you know, that when I think of, you know, for me, it was, after my surgery was, I think, I forget if it was six months or eight, I had to go back for bronchoscopy. And of course that was, I was terrified to get to have to go into the under again, because I knew what it was like the first time. And then I didn't realize, you know, so, but, but then after that, like to your point, it was just like, well, that's it. I mean, that's pretty much, we got a clean result from that. And I, and I didn't have to do anything else. And so um, maybe that's changed now. I don't know, but I think it's all, it's also, if you can glean some really interesting things from, from the data, then you might actually change some of the guidelines potentially, right? Absolutely. That's the goal is to, you know, but it's, it's not, there's not always this nice direct line, straight line between research findings and changing practice, right? That's a whole nother (laughs) uh, can of worms, you know, in terms of implementation science. So, First, we got to figure out what we're supposed to do, and then we got to figure out how to make practitioners do it and how to get patients to accept it as the standard of care. Um, so we're still really at the front end of this mm-hmm. whole um, research train. And, pay, and payers <laughs> to pay for it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the first step is to figure out what we're supposed to do yeah. and make the guidelines reflect that. Yeah. When we talked, another thing I know you're really involved with this, you, you chair the task force on lung cancer in women um, at the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. And I'm sure you're working with a lot of amazing people through that. So how much, how much of your time do you spend on that? And what's, what is that? Um, how does that uh, emotionally make, uh, have you, how, how do you feel about that in terms of the difference that you can make by being part of that? That's another special population, you know, which is, which is, which is really great. Um, I mean, that was an opportunity that presented itself to me. So I can't take credit for having sought it out or anything, but it is um, a really neat opportunity to shine a light on an area within lung cancer that's still somewhat dark. Like we all know the observation that there is this disproportionate, um, uptick or at least persistence in the rates of lung cancer among never smoking young women and of a particular subtype of lung cancer. So like everyone knows this observation, but we've done very little to figure out the why and the, what do we do with that information? Um, so like, again, that's just, an, it's another area that's still relatively uh, that's in its infancy for the most part. Um, one of the projects within the national, within that um, task group is um, trying to figure out how it is that we can increase rates of screening for high-risk women that would mirror our rates of mammography and breast cancer screening uh, because the two are completely disparate in terms of the numbers. And um, so this is not focusing on the um, non-traditional um, young female never smoker because we still don't know exactly how to uh, approach that group. You know, they don't meet any high risk criteria, so they don't meet criteria for any kind of traditional lung cancer screening. So 
the, the, the mammogram project that I'm talking about is just focusing on the traditional um, high-risk lung cancer patient group uh, who happen to be women. But again, like I said, trying to capitalize on the opportunity that the women presenting for their mammogram would actually also be uh, potentially screened for lung cancer if they, if they, and, and get it if they meet criteria, um, which kind of is a no-brainer. And I wish I had a magic wand that I could say there's like a Uniscan that you can do that will scan your breasts and your lungs all in one fell swoop, and there you go. But we don't really have that yet, and there's so many reasons. Even if we did have it, there's still so many other barriers as to why that would not be um, an easy thing to implement. But it's still an important area for us to study and to at least make some, take a first swing at trying to improve that number. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm wishing I had a magic wand because I actually <laughs> talk about this a lot because I talk about you know, the, the percentage of women who get mammograms versus the percentage of, to your point, these young women who are, might be at high risk for lung cancer are not getting screened. And why isn't that? And I know that we could talk about this for hours. And I know that this, I'm not a scientist. So this, I'm, it's out, I'm out of my league even trying to answer the questions, but I am asking the questions because yeah. it's like, it's like, how, you know, what do we need to, to move this to that point? And, you know, I understand you know, there's like false positives and all these and nobody seems to be on the same page. I saw there's a lot of people like, I know that a lot of people care a lot about it, but I think there's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of disagreement in different things. And so I think it feels like we just have a long way to go still, right? Like some of, like in some of the physicians who don't want, you know, who don't believe in, you know, lung cancer screening because, you know, too many false positives and problems and this and that. And so I think, all, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, again, I'm not a scientist, but I just feel like, I love the fact that you're working on this because it's really important, but um and knowing that you're working with a lot of other good people, I know that we're going to make progress. Yeah, I mean, there's huge um, uh, lack of awareness, right? Um, I mean, you know, we live and eat and eat and breathe this stuff every day, but assuming everyone else does is 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 clearly uh, a flawed uh, uh, logic for sure. But every time I'm out in a community setting, I always ask people just by show of hands, how many people know about prostate cancer screening? How many know about breast cancer screening? How many know about colon cancer screening? How many know about lung cancer screening? And, you know, it's just night and day, right? The number of hands that you see raised, there's always like a couple, but it, that's it. Like never more than just a couple. And that's one thing. But the other thing, which I think is even more damning is the fact that amongst providers, <laughs> you have a very significant lack of awareness too. And if you look at, for instance, mammography um, or women who are presenting for mammogram, a number of those mammograms are ordered by their gynecologists. You know, so we always talk about like targeting primary care doctors. Well, for a huge set of our population who are women, gynecology is their primary care provider. And so if you miss the opportunity to hone in on your gynecology colleagues, you're going to miss a huge opportunity to try to get that overlap and create the opportunity for more screening amongst um, um, breast cancer screening patients. So uh, it's just trying to have a different lens that we view things, but recognizing that the deficits are, are varied. You know, it's not just all in one place. That's an excellent point. I hadn't thought of that. Honestly, I didn't even thought that. Because we always use the, this broad brush of primary care, right? Because I was just going to say, 
we really need to get primary care physicians to be more aware of people who are at risk and might need a, to get a, a screen, but I hadn't thought of in terms of actually really thinking about for, for the women population that you're, that you're serving, the gynecologists are, are such an important part of that of that process. You know, again, just thinking yeah. of my, as my wife, for example, that her, exactly her, her primary care doctor is a, is a gynecologist. So thanks for bringing that point up. That's really, <laughs> and you know, I know there's one other thing <clears throat> that I wanted to just to touch on, and I, we, this is another topic that we could talk about for for many days and weeks, probably. But um, one thing that I really care about is, is healthcare disparities, and I'm working I'm working on a few projects um, um, at Grit Health, is a company that I that I work for in diversity oncology and lung cancer health equity, and so I'm I'm trying to put together teams of people to kind of, particularly the patient voice of like what's that experience of of what that you live in, right? What and from these various different underserved populations. So, are you doing work in this area? I know you care about it. You want to just can you just share with us um, your thoughts, real quick? Yeah, um, I have collaborated on a number of projects and and written different manuscripts and whatnot in this area. I have not worked specifically on an intervention. This is the big problem when it comes to any disparities research is that we uh, we collectively, like the research community, are very good at describing the disparities that exist. Like we're pretty, we've got that pretty well nailed down. Um, and almost anywhere you look for whatever question, you're going to find them. <laughs> so it's not really novel anymore to continue to report on disparities what we need to do is figure out how to actually move the needle and take that knowledge and develop the interventions that are going to address them. And in my mind, part of the barriers there are the fact that, yes, we have sort of these big, broad um, uh, disparities that affect many communities and um, are on a very large scale. But a whole lot of the disparities that have at least been reported upon and whatnot are kind of happening and perpetuated at the local level. And so it's difficult to come up with an intervention that uh, works in one community and is transferable to another community, to another community, to another community, or that's scalable uh, from one community to just, you know, like a national initiative kind of thing. Right. And I don't mean that they, they don't, that those opportunities don't exist. They do. But I think that the interventions that have at least proven to be successful have rested on the sort of small scale local community type interventions, which are important, but very difficult, as I said, to translate and, 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 and demonstrate scalability. So I think that's, probably the, the, the biggest um, issue that I see um, that's a barrier for things really moving forward in this area. Like we know where the disparities are. They're not, it's not really newsworthy anymore. It's just a matter of, okay, what are we going to do? Right. And then people get fatigued listening to it. You know, it's like, oh God, here we go. Another Debbie Downer kind of story about how <laughs> we're not doing enough or how this group is disenfranchised more. Not and, fair, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like people get tired of hearing about that. Um, so it's like more bad news. Like, so what are we doing to actually prepare for the earthquake as opposed to just talking about, you know, the devastation of the earthquake? <laughs> <laughs> Another great metaphor. I love that. Um, 
again, thanks for sharing because these are these are like really nuggets of really um, thoughtful um, ideas and perspective that you have. And I I agree with you because we talk about it, we talk about it. I, I hear these things on these and I listen to these people, but then nothing happens, and we just kind of report the you know the devastation of the earthquake, right? Um, so I really kind of I kind of love that idea, and I'm the perspective that I bring, and this is why this matters to me, is that, and it's not just reporting the devastation, but my, my, my cancer experience was privileged. I had no barriers. I had no access issues. My employer was supportive. My, um, I had support from my wife and family. Um, I had good insurance. I had, I went to the top, you know, the chief of threat. I had the, my, my experience was, and I, and I, the older that I get, and the more that I live my life, I realize that's not the experience that most people have. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's not fair, because mm -hmm. I believe everybody deserves the VIP access that I had to great care at MGH. Mm -hmm. So I love this idea of this intervention of trying to, and I see it at small levels. I agree with you. I think there are some small progress at, at the local level. But, you know, that's, that's just the perspective that I'm that I'm trying to bring in and, and speak about it so that other people like me are more responsive to it and not just go, well, too bad for them. It's like, no, it's not too bad for them. That's not right. That's just, I'm sorry. That's just wrong. It's very wrong. Yeah. So um, I want to swing, swing around here as we get uh, towards the end here. Now you're good. You're good buddies with my, with my friend, Chris draft. You've known him a lot longer than I've known him. I've only known him for like seven or eight years, but um, I know it goes back to your Stanford days, uh, and I know that you have a white ribbon, and I have to ask all my guests uh, on the show, um, the first thing I'd like to know is, tell us how you felt when you first heard about the white ribbon project. I'm assuming you heard it from Chris, but I wanted to, as a, as a clinician and researcher, I wanted to ask you, what did you think of it when you first heard about it? I guess I thought that it was another example of how important it is to foster the collaborative relationship between the academicians who are out there trying to study lung cancer from all angles, way down to the molecular level, and all of our patient advocates, and by extension, you know, not just the patients themselves, but their network of supporters and whatnot, and how powerful we can be when we're able to work together. Um, that is one of the, I think, um, strengths of the National Lung Cancer Roundtable and the American Cancer Society informing it is that um, it draws upon the strength of including our patient advocates at each in each task group uh, at each level and every meeting is opened with the voice of the patient um, because it can be um, I, I guess uh, easy in some regard to if you're not a clinician you know so let, let's say you're a researcher and you're not really seeing patients every day it can be easy to disconnect the actual patient from what it is that you're doing, you know, and there, and the minute you do that, you've lost, <laughs> you know, because um, whatever new brilliant thing that you're coming up with, unless it's had, um, it, unless it's been framed appropriately from the, from the Genesis, 
uh, in terms of um, clinical applicability, acceptability, all of these things, then it's going to be dead in the water. So that, that, I mean, I was sort of an elaborate response, but <laughs> that's what I thought. It's just like, this is an important um, message to, to, to perpetuate that we are stronger together. I appreciate that. That's because that's how I see it. And I tell, I tell everybody, I was, I'm a patient advocate and have lived through this. So for me, what drew me to it when I first heard of it right from the very beginning and the reason that Chris asked me to get involved and I'm proud and happy to be on the board um, of this uh, nonprofit that was actually waiting to get paper filled to make it real um, is that it was a grassroots movement, but it was not just, it was not branded. It was not, it was just, a group of, it started with one person and her husband, you know, and it caught my attention and I, I live in Boston and they live in Colorado. And, but the more and more that I started connecting with people like you and people like Justin Gaynor and Lisa Sequis and the folks over at Dana-Farber and the pharmaceutical people I know, that was the power to me was that it was not just a bunch of patients, like always just saying, you know, we need to do this. It was like making those connections and building community you know, at, at USC or at UCLA, you know, with, with local advocates. And, and I think that's, the. I'm just grateful for, I've always said, I, I'm just grateful for, for people like you getting involved and probably having a ribbon in your office because, and Chris will always say, well, they should be because they care as much as we do. And I'm like, but that was what was kind of missing. I think with patient hours, they don't realize that whether it's a research or it's, it's someone who's actually treating patients, I've learned because I've met so many of them now how much they do care. And when Justin Gaynor and Inga Lennis came to my house to make ribbons on a Saturday morning, I was like humbled by that. It was just so cool, you know? So uh, anyway, thank you for sharing. And I, I'm, it's been an honor to talk with you. And I just really want to thank you again for all the work that you're doing. Uh, maybe we'll meet someday if I get out to California. I know, I know Chris, is, <laughs> Chris seems like he's in Los Angeles like every other day. Um, which is great. I'm glad he gets to all see his friends and family and stuff always out there, but congrats to the Rams. And <laughs> the Patriots will be back next year. So we'll see about that. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Leah, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. This has been great. Keep doing all the good work you're doing and spreading the word. Thank you.